Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Podcast, Key Points in the Management of Lupus and Lupus Nephritis. I'm your host, Craig Borders. This, the first of two podcasts, will focus on frequently asked questions about the evaluation and management of lupus and lupus nephritis. Joining us today are Drs. Karen Kostenbader and Brad Roven. Dr. Kostenbader is Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Director of the Lupus Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Roven is Professor of Medicine and Pathology and Director of the Division of Nephrology at Ohio State in Columbus. For more information about Drs. Kostenbader and Roven, and for a link to the full online educational program, including an on-demand webcast and downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. The program is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Let's get started. It's my pleasure to turn things over to Dr. Kostenbader. Hi, Brad. It's nice to see you again. Boy, we had a lot of questions here that have come in over the last uh, few days, I guess, from our webinars and just highly uh, interested people about the management of lupus and lupus nephritis. So lots for us to talk about. I think the first question that comes up is among patients with lupus, how do you identify patients at high risk for lupus nephritis? What should we be looking for in our lupus patients to signal onset of lupus nephritis? Thanks, Karen. I think that uh, there's some things that seem to be associated with uh, lupus nephritis. And the biggest one in my mind is the patients. And we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, patients uh, of color, uh, patients of African ancestry, patients who are Asian or Hispanic tend to have uh, more uh, incidence or a higher incidence of, of lupus nephritis and they should be watched carefully. That's not to say everyone shouldn't be watched carefully, but certainly those patients uh, might have a high index, one might have a high index of suspicion. I also look at uh, the patient's serologies. Well, the serology isn't necessarily one-to-one correlation with the development of lupus nephritis. Uh, A lot of patients with lupus nephritis do have rather high anti-double-stranded DNA levels, and low complement levels. So I'm especially cautious about those patients. And then I interrogate their urine uh, through urinalysis. And I'm very careful to understand why there may be blood in the urine if there is blood and if there's no other reason, uh, for example, uh, the patient is not menstruating, then I am very wary that they may be developing lupus nephritis, and I keep a very close eye on them. That sounds good. I agree. I think there are data from big cohorts that probably 75 or 80% of people who develop lupus nephritis do it right at the start of their disease. When they initially present with their lupus, they'll also have evidence of lupus nephritis. But that means that, you know, 20, 25% of people don't, and will go on to develop uh, lupus nephritis and renal involvement later, and it and it may be lupus nephritis, or it could be another kind of renal disease. We also have to think about. So I agree with you that people who are, you know, non-white, non-European ancestry, who are probably younger, who've had very um, kind of active lupus in general, and have low complements and high double-stranded, definitely those patients I want to see every three months, and if they, you know, and get their urine and get their creatinine and make sure things, you know, stable. If not, off to, off to the nephrologist. 
Agree. <laughs> exactly. Business for you. And then there's a follow-up question about a specific, you know, say you have a patient who's 18 years old, she has lupus, she's already taking hydroxychloroquine and methotrexate, and her creatinine just bumped up a little bit from her baseline of 0.7, and now it's 1.04. So what's the next step and, and how worried should you be? So that's, that's really an interesting question. And in just dealing with the information we have, where nobody's given me a urinalysis, and of course, uh, urine is probably my favorite body fluid to uh, look at, other ones accepted. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think what folks need to realize is that for most patients, you really need to see proteinuria and they almost always have hematuria when this is truly lupus nephritis defined as immune complex mediated glomerular inflammation and damage. It's very unusual to simply have an increase in serum creatinine representing a decrease in kidney function uh, from lupus without these other attributes. And so if this patient really had no proteinuria and no hematuria, but a rise in creatinine, and they're immunosuppressed, and they have general lupus, not known to have lupus nephritis, then I would look for other reasons for that acute kidney injury. Now, a lot of patients with lupus have joint issues. They may be taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in quantity, and uh, they may not have that prescribed, but they may be doing that over the counter. So that would be something very important to look at. Also, in any immunosuppressed patient who develops a rise in creatinine, uh, we always uh, look for the possibility of infection because that can impair uh, kidney function as well. If the patient just presented like that from their primary care physician's office and they were sent over, I would do a urinalysis. Uh, we have a microscope in our clinic. I look for proteinuria, of course, and then I also look at the urine sediment for any uh, suggestion that there is either glomerular bleeding, so a glomerulonephritis, and that means red blood cell casts, which are sometimes difficult to find, and they're very fragile, if you will. Uh, more often, we find dysmorphic red cells or red cells that aren't oval in shape and that have blebs on them. And that's a, a fairly good indicator of glomerular bleeding that would go along with uh, glomerulonephritis. And then I also look for inflammation. Now, this is a little bit tricky because you can have inflammation on the urinalysis from a urinary tract infection, which is not uncommon in this young, largely female population, or you can have inflammation from uh, an inflammatory kidney disease like lupus nephritis. So when I do look at white cells in the urine, I always try to take an assessment as to whether there are a lot of bacteria present because that might sway me one way or the other. When you see pure kidney inflammation, you have leukocytes in the urine, but without bacteria. And uh, that would be uh, sort of my starting workup. And then if I convinced myself that this patient really did have lupus nephritis, then discuss uh, the possibility of doing a kidney biopsy. Yeah, that sounds good. Very complete workup. Definitely. I think, you know, a bump from 0.7 to 1.04 isn't enormous, 
but it does uh, deserve scrutiny and yeah, ruling out other causes and thinking about, could this be the onset of lupus nephritis as we're discussing? And then I think the only other wrinkle to that is that she was taking not only hydroxychloroquine, but also methotrexate. So in the time that you're working this up and seeing if it's a real bump, or if it's going to just come right back down to normal because she was taking NSAIDs, I would, you know, either reduce the dose or stop the methotrexate, which is toxic in the setting of renal insufficiency. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think whenever, and like you said, most of these patients are young and otherwise healthy for the most part and have a reasonably low uh, serum creatinines that reflect their muscle mass, but normal kidney function. And even though this seems like a fairly unremarkable increase in the creatinine, it does represent, if sustained anyway, a decline in GFR. And when you're dealing with medications that might have ramifications in a patient with impaired uh, filtration, then you do have to think about dose adjustment. Yeah. Actually, speaking of doses and uh, adjustment, so a question for both of us about limiting exposure to hydroxychloroquine over time. And if there's a certain time, you know, number of years after which we would definitely stop hydroxychloroquine, and we probably both have experience and ideas about this. I think there is growing evidence that over time, hydroxychloroquine does have toxicity, that we've been very concerned about the retinal toxicity and adjusting the dose uh, dosing of hydroxychloroquine now down to five milligrams per kilogram from 6.5 milligrams per kilogram because of evidence that there's increased retinal toxicity. And the retinal toxicity from hydroxychloroquine is both dose and duration related. So I don't worry about it as much when I start someone. I think that's kind of a no-brainer, especially, you know, someone with new onset lupus or, or lupus nephritis. So we want to keep them on the five milligrams per kilogram but and get the baseline retinal exam. I also get a baseline EKG now in everyone just to make sure there's no QT prolongation at baseline because there are a lot of other medications that can combine with hydroxychloroquine to lead to uh, QT prolongation. And I'd like to know about that. And then for the first few years, I don't worry about it. I think it's a great drug. It's very disease stabilizing. We've shown in many, many different cohort studies, all the advantages, uh, decreased risk of infection, uh, brings cholesterol down, uh, decreased renal disease. Definitely, it's, it's really um, very good, um, you know, decreased vascular disease. But after about uh, five years, then the timing of the retinal um, screening has to has to step up and I start worrying about it. But then after like, I'm getting older, so my patients have now been on for 10, 15, 20 years, I'm definitely worried about it. And maybe at that point, their disease is more quiescent. They've been on hydroxychloroquine maybe for, you know, 20 years. So now I think we do have to start reassessing whether they really need it. I'm tapering people down to maybe every other day. People do start to have more arthralgias. There's um, a nice study from Peter S. Murley at NYU about tapering people off hydroxychloroquine, especially I think it was mainly older women who'd had you know, stable lupus for many years and the risk of flare. And in that population, and I mean, an older population, they didn't see that it was related to flare. So I think you need to talk to your patients about this dose-related toxicity. And, and cardiac toxicity is another dose-related and time-related toxicity that it can that hydroxychloroquine actually accumulates in the lysosomes and um, causes uh, this pigmentation change we can see in the skin and can cause cardiac dysfunction, can cause 
uh, retinal toxicity. So uh, if you see this blue-gray tinge in your patient's skin, that's at one sign they've been exposed to hydroxychloroquine for, for far too long and to taper down. And just think about how long it's been and whether they really need it anymore. Yeah, I think hydroxychloroquine, the antimalarials are uh, amazingly efficacious uh, medications. And I, I pull out the fact all the time that the Canadian withdrawal study uh, demonstrated if, if hydroxychloroquine was removed, not in the population you're talking about that have been on it and stable for years, but, you know, more fresh lupus. And these patients tended to flare and flare badly. And some of those uh, flares were lupus nephritis flares that were very severe. So I'm very cautious about taking the medication away. And as you said, I'm getting older and my patients have been on for a long time. My policy has been, and I know this is not necessarily consistent with the uh, ophthalmologic uh, society, but I, I really do get retinal exams every year, starting from when I start the medication. And we've picked up a couple of retinal changes, but fortunately not very many. I do think that I've started bringing the dosing back from twice a day to once a day if the patients have been on for a very long time. And, you know, the two side effects you mentioned or, or toxicities uh, really come home to me with two patients. Uh, one uh, was a relatively uh, young woman who was in a clinical trial, and all of a sudden her QT interval was prolonged. And I didn't know if it was the hydroxychloroquine or uh, the experimental drug she may have been on. So I stopped the hydroxychloroquine and lo and behold, her QT interval normalized. And I thought, aha, anyway, she's off this trial now and she's doing very well. I thought we'd add back hydroxychloroquine cautiously and we did. And uh, it was not a case of two drugs working together. Her QT interval prolonged again. And so I said, probably you should not be taking hydroxychloroquine uh, even though you have lupus. The other one that fooled me was earlier in my career, I didn't realize about the skin discoloration and, and a patient came in to me and she looked terribly bruised. And I, I was actually worried that someone was, was harming the patient at home. So I had a frank discussion with her and she said, oh, that started with my hydroxychloroquine. And those discussions and, and observations have really brought home the potential for toxicity, albeit not very frequent. So we do have to keep an eye on them. I agree. Yeah. And I agree with you. I also send my patients to the ophthalmologist annually because I think it's good to get into good habits. And now with a new um, OCT, the optical coherence tomography, basically a CT of the eye, they're, they're looking you know, very closely at the, at the retinal thickness over time. And they have, they've identified quite a few of my patients that needed to be either tapered down or stopped. And so we haven't gotten in trouble, which is lucky. Speaking of toxicities, so how safe are the newer agents for uh, lupus and lupus nephritis, belimumab, anaphrolimab, and vulcosporin for women who are pregnant or breastfeeding? Given the population, we do have um, these issues come up a lot. I don't think we have a lot of good data on any of these newer medications. In particular, we do use calcineurin inhibitors. We use them all the time, of course, in patients uh, who have had kidney transplant. And we've sort of designated them as being safe uh, during pregnancy. 
the formulation of Voclosporin that we currently have, the pills contain alcohol. And so there's been some question as to whether they should be given to patients who are, are pregnant. And Tacrolimus, for example, is a calcineurin inhibitor that doesn't include alcohol in the formulation. Now, I do understand that Voclo is, they're trying to reformulate it, but I might really think hard about that uh, before I, I gave it uh, during pregnancy. I don't think I know any data, and, and you use belumumab quite a bit more than I do, of belumumab in pregnancy or breastfeeding. And uh, anaphrolumab, of course, we're just looking at this in lupus nephritis right now. It's been approved now for non-renal lupus. What, what, are you, what is your take yeah, on that? No, I agree. I think, unfortunately, it's a data-free zone that usually women who even desire pregnancy are excluded from all the clinical trials. So we have no data on the safety of volumab and afrolumab or vocosporin in, in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Vocosporin probably is the safest, as you mentioned, because it's closer you know, the cal- to the calcineurin inhibitors. We do use tacrolimus um, with a lot of experience there from transplant and from uh, nephrologists. We can use that in pregnancy. But volumab and afrolumab, I have had patients not with anaphrolumab, which is we're just getting some uh, started with as well. But I've had patients on bulimab with quiescent disease become pregnant, and then we try to stop it as soon as possible. And in general, you know, the American College of Rheumatology has come out with very, very complete recommendations for pregnancy and reproductive health and our medications in rheumatology and hasn't addressed bulimab, anaphrolimab, or vocosporin. So really, but for lupus, we try to have very quiescent disease for at least six months and before even thinking about contemplating pregnancy, which is, you know, a tall order. It's, it's hard when people are getting older and want, and want to start families, but they do much better if their lupus is under good control and then we can taper off all the toxic medications and really make good plans and, and think about well in advance. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and especially true for patients with lupus nephritis where pregnancy outcomes with active disease are, are very poor and, and we really want a sustained remission so we can decrease medications and try to... Uh, provide the best possible conditions for a successful pregnancy. So there, there are still a lot of questions uh, for us about the uh, treatment of lupus and lupus nephritis, but one that we're getting more and more is about the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with uh, lupus and lupus nephritis and whether they work, whether they're safe, etc. Do you have any experience in this, Brad? Yeah, I'll, I'll, this is, again, this will be my personal experience. I'll, I'll, I'll start off just with a little bit of, of background for the audience, just because I think it's, it's relevant. So SGLT2 inhibitors, of course, are oral diabetic agents. And the way they sort of came into nephrology uh, awareness is they were tested in patients who had a cardiovascular disease from diabetes, as well as diabetic kidney disease. And uh, we saw some very remarkable data uh, come out of those trials as to the preservation of kidney function in patients with diabetic kidney disease and and a decline in progressive loss of of GFR. So the next step of that was uh, called the DAPA-CKD study, and they looked at uh, one of the SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with non-diabetic kidney disease chronic kidney disease. And uh, we saw that this also, uh, in, in these particular patients, slowed progressive decline in kidney function. So it looked like the SGLT2 inhibitors 
are able to preserve kidney function over time in patients who already have fixed impaired kidney damage. And some of the subset analyses of the DAPA-CKD trial included patients with IgA nephropathy. Now, IgA nephropathy is another form of kidney disease. I believe it's an autoimmune kidney disease. It's not unlike lupus in that it has immune complexes depositing in the kidney, but of course it's not lupus. And lupus patients were specifically excluded from this trial. So my comments now are on my own. But the, uh, the IgA patients actually uh, showed a decline in kidney-specific endpoints, such as doubling of serum creatinine, end-stage kidney disease, uh, and uh, progressive loss of GFR when they were taking the DAPA phlegloxacin. So extrapolating that to other patients with chronic kidney disease, this is what I'm doing in my clinic right now. I believe it's critically important to treat active inflammatory kidney disease with immunomodulation or immunosuppression. And that's what I do with all my patients. Now, some of our patients will wind up with chronic kidney disease at the end of all this, or over time, if they have several flares, they'll accumulate chronic kidney injury. I have started patients with impaired GFR on SGLT2 inhibitors with the idea of preserving kidney function over time and prolonging the life of their native kidneys prior to them potentially needing kidney replacement therapy, dialysis, or transplantation. What I've done so far is done a kidney biopsy. As you know, Karen, we tend to do a lot of kidney biopsies at, at my program, but uh, did a kidney biopsy to assure myself that there is no inflammatory disease that needs to be addressed immunologically. And then I've been adding the SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, these were just approved for non-diabetic kidney disease about a year ago or so. And, and so my follow-up is not long enough to tell you how it's changing potentially the course of these patients. But what I can tell you is that in general, in non-diabetic patients, lupus patients that, that don't have diabetes, the drugs are very well tolerated. Uh, the patients uh, do not have a lot of side effects. And we're watching them now to see how they do over the long term. Uh, so this is an open question. I think it's a fair question. Some of the unanswered questions are, of course, just as you indicated, when is the best time to add an SGLT2 inhibitor? Do you need to really wait to the patient has absolutely no immunologic activity? Can they be used with other drugs such as immunosuppressive agents? And should they be started earlier in the course of chronic kidney disease? Will that provide a better outcome for patients? All great questions, all really suggest many clinical trials that could be done with these medications to answer these questions. So I think that's uh, something that we really do need to look at as a community, but certainly has a great deal of good potential for our patients. Yeah, I agree. I'm really excited. Um, there are, def- you know, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think, are the new kid on the block, and there's a lot of excitement about them. The- our patients with lupus and lupus nephritis and patients on immunosuppression have been excluded from these DEPA-CKD trials. So lots of questions to ask. And um, we're looking retrospectively just in our patient population here at the Brigham to see whether they have been used in patients with rheumatic diseases on 
immunosuppression, how well they're tolerated because we really don't know. So your experience is really valuable as well. Very, very cool. Thank you, Drs. Kostenbader and Roven. Please be sure to tune into our next podcast in which Drs. Kostenbader and Roven will discuss disparities in the prevalence and management of lupus and lupus nephritis, why those disparities may be occurring, and what healthcare providers can do to address them. As a reminder, to view the full lupus and lupus nephritis improving outcomes and reducing disparities program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important topics in immunology. Thank you.